The Divine Sage, a novel by J. P. Cunningham. Excerpt read by David Sweeney Bear. Chapter 1. H.M.S. Conway, Cape Horn, 26th November, 1820. In all my days I have never seen anything quite so beautiful as the Aurora Australis, which I had good fortune to witness on the night we navigated Cape Horn. The mysterious celestial light appeared shortly after nightfall, first as a shimmering arc of green fire over the southern horizon, then growing by degrees until its luminous tendrils stretched high into the starlit heavens, wavering and dancing above the Conway's creaking masts and flapping sails. Our passage up until that point had been one of little excitement. Rounding the Cape is widely regarded as the foremost test of seamanship, and I had spent the weeks before our departure from England poring over maps and seeking advice on how best to survive the unpredictable tides and strong winds that dominate these latitudes. But upon entering the chilly waters of the southern Atlantic, we experienced only clear skies and favourable breezes. Indeed, when earlier that same evening we finally spotted the jagged coastline of the Tierra del Fuego on the western horizon, I could not help but feel a little disappointed. There it was, the infamous promontory that has gained such celebrity in nautical history, silhouetted against the dying rays of the sun. Yet, as ship's captain, what had I done besides pace back and forth on the icy deck, puffing on my pipe and listening to the wind whistling through the ropes? At any rate, the aurora was to change all that. It was every bit as breathtaking and otherworldly as the salty accounts one hears from old mariners in the taverns of Plymouth docks. Down on the main deck the men stood in an eerie silence, open-mouthed with clouds of breath collecting over their heads. Some of the more nimble sailors had climbed high into the rigging, as if drawn up in a rapture towards the bewitching luminosity that snaked between the constellations, shining with such brilliance that the Conway's sails were dyed a ghostly green. Alone on the quarter-deck, with the collars of my coat pulled in tight about my neck, I took in the heavenly show. I found myself in a deep contemplation as to what forces lay behind its manifestation, the vagaries of weather and accumulations of atmospheric particles that must coincide to bring such a magnificent display into existence. What purpose did the aurora serve in the grander scheme of things? Did it exist solely to strike awe into the hearts of lonely sailors? To remind us that the majesty of the universe will forever outdo the majesty of men, its secrets remaining forever beyond our grasp? I was snapped out of my train of thought by the appearance of a swinging lantern which wove its way across the main deck. A shadowy figure climbed the ladderway and walked towards me, his shoulders hunched against the cold. It was George Burney, the Conway's surgeon. "'Have you ever seen the like?' I said, still gazing up at the shimmering light. Burney gave the aurora only a momentary glance. "'I am afraid I have some troubling news, Captain.' We have lost Mr. Gillies. John Gillies was our only paying passenger, and suffered from incipient consumption, a chronic form of the disease that does not kill its victims outright, but leaves them lingering in ill health for many years. Eight weeks previous I had watched two of my midshipmen escort Gillies onto the Conway at Plymouth Docks. His sallow complexion, bent posture, and unsteady gait made him look more than twice his twenty-eight years. If the truth be known, I did not expect the man to survive a fortnight, let alone the three-month voyage to the coasts of the New World. 
I placed a consoling hand on the doctor's shoulder. We shall have a burial at first light, I said solemnly, and I will write a letter to his next of kin. Burney raised the lantern, the flickering flame reflecting in his spectacles. Mr. Gillies is not dead, sir. He appears to have vanished. What? I cannot find him anywhere, sir. I thought you said the man was confined to his cot. He was, the doctor insisted. This afternoon, when I paid him a visit, he could barely lift a glass of water to his lips. Men do not simply vanish, I told him. Mr. Gillies must have awoken in a delirium and stumbled out of his cabin. Is he being administered laudanum? Burney shook his head. He refuses to take anything but those herbal concoctions of his, and I have searched every cabin, cupboard, and storeroom, all the way down to the hold. I gazed into the darkness beyond the railings. The constellation of the Southern Cross, that much-loved celestial anchor for mariners, was rising above the horizon. Taking out my tinder-box, I relit my pipe while I considered the situation. Well, then, the only explanation remaining is that the poor fellow has found his way up here and fallen overboard. The doctor rubbed his forehead with his gloved hand. I do not believe John was capable of— Then what are you suggesting? I said, grabbing hold of one of the cat lines to steady myself as the Conway leapt over a succession of waves. A sprinkling of snowflakes fell from the rigging above. That our Mr. Gillies has been spirited away? No, sir, of course not. Our conversation was interrupted by the arrival of Lieutenant Woolerton on the quarter-deck. Woolerton was the lowest in rank of the Conway's three lieutenants, despite being the oldest, a situation that he had not ceased complaining about since our departure from England. The lieutenant's dour and cynical disposition was evident at his interview, throughout which I listened to a diatribe of criticism against his previous commander, and summarily pegged the gloomy Yorkshireman sitting across my desk as the kind who is quick to find faults in others, whilst being quite oblivious to his own shortcomings. But alas, it transpired that I had little choice in selecting him for the voyage. Having served for more than two decades as midshipman without receiving a promotion, the Admiralty had already decided that Woolerton should be given a chance to prove himself. "'Still no sight or sound of Mr. Gillies?' the lieutenant asked, dragging his vowels as Yorkshire folk tend to. "'Mind you, I always knew he were trouble. One of them clever types, who thinks himself above the rest of us. And taking a voyage halfway round the world in such a state of poor health makes you wonder.' My fingers tensed irritably around the stem of my pipe as I sought to relight it. From what I gather, Mr. Gillies was braving this passage to benefit from the mild climate Chile has to offer. Aye, well, there were always something queer about that man, if you ask me, the lieutenant went on, taking little heed of what I said. I heard he were dismissed from another ship, owing to a matter of misconduct involving a young officer. The lad died of a fever, so they say, but there were rumours he were poisoned by one of Mr. Gillies' medications. That is absolute rubbish, Burney interjected sharply. Mr. Gillies retired from the Navy owing to his declining health, and for that reason alone. He threw me an exasperated glance before turning back to Woolerton. And for your information, the young officer was dying of yellow fever. I can assure you Mr. Gillies would have done all he could to save his life. Aye. And you doctors stick together. Woolerton tapped his nose conspiratorially. That hypocritic oath you swear by? Burney rolled his eyes. Hippocratic oath. 
and it has nothing to do with doctors sticking together. The lieutenant shrugged dismissively. At any rate, I were going to say that we found him. He pointed across the deck towards the bow. Mind you, I think he might be frozen stiff. Why didn't you say something before? Bernie snapped. I were getting to it, Woolerton replied, clearly enjoying his petty triumph over the doctor. Mr. Legg is seeing to him. Sounds to me as if this might have been his fault, but I shall leave it to him to explain. The doctor and I hurried across the deck and climbed the stairway to the bow. We found Lieutenant Legg crouching beside a pile of frozen ropes under the foremast. I am dreadfully sorry, sir, he gabbled, then stood up and saluted, all pale-faced and ruddy-cheeked in the lamplight. This is all my fault. I was called to Mr. Gillies's cabin earlier. He said it was the doctor's orders that he should get some air. Bernie held his lantern aloft, revealing a pair of skinny legs sticking out from a bundle of snow-covered blankets. I said no such thing. When was this? Shortly after sunset, sir. Did he say which doctor gave these orders? I asked, clambering over the bowlines to take a closer look at the body swaddled in blankets. Leg looked confused. No, sir. Mr. Gillies is a former surgeon for His Majesty's Royal Navy, I explained. He may have been referring to himself. It was Gillies all right, Frost clinging to his mutton-chop whiskers and eyebrows, his spectacles sitting crookedly across his nose. He looked dead enough to me, sunken-cheeked and blue-lipped as he was. Reaching down, I placed the back of my hand on his cheek. It was cold, but the skin was still soft. He might yet be alive. Clutching his jaw, I moved his head about. Bernie, come take a look. The doctor stepped between the ropes. Pressing his fingers against the man's neck, he felt for a pulse. We must get him below deck. As we positioned ourselves to lift Gillies, there was a movement beneath his eyelids, as if his eyeballs were rolling about. All at once he awoke and glanced around wildly before looking me straight in the eye. I saw you, he gasped, his voice strained and hoarse. Down there in the darkness, it was you. Yes, well, I am up here too, I said, assuming him to be in a delirium. You must try and stay with us, Mr. Gillies. I removed his spectacles for safekeeping. We are going to carry you to my cabin and get you warmed up. His eyes darted towards the sky, widening further still as he took in the aurora, a luminous green ribbon billowing directly over our heads. The light, he whispered. He is watching us, Captain. Gillies remained with his eyes locked on the aurora for a few moments more before slipping under. He did not speak again, nor show any signs of returning to consciousness, while we lumbered him across the deck and down the companionway steps to the great cabin. Stretching him out on the seating beneath the long window, I covered him with a thick woollen blanket. End of excerpt